0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When I think about what it means to love somebody in a professional sense, what I mean is that I intelligently share my key intangibles the stuff that doesn't leave me when I give it away, my knowledge, my network, my compassion. And I do it with the spirit of promoting the other person's success and most importantly, promoting their growth. And I believe, Srini, that the foundation for building relationships and helping people is to share your knowledge. Whether in a chance conversation, whether in a formal mentorship program, you share knowledge to help other people succeed and you develop trust, and so I believe, much like Leo Biscaglia says, the reason you want to be the greatest is it's something you can give away. And what I've learned is you cannot give away what you do not have. So if, if, if sharing knowledge is the foundation of moving forward, then the most important task is to aggregate knowledge. And not just common knowledge, but the deep, the hidden, the difficult to understand, absorb, and code and articulate that's the stuff that's going to make you special in this world.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
6: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
4: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices up.
6: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
5: Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household customized to your family's needs and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com/acast.
2: Tim, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Absolutely, Srini. I'm glad to be with you.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I was introduced to you by way of uh, uh, the group at Interview Valet. And I I remember coming across your book years ago thinking something about this book intrigues me and seems interesting. So it was really kind of serendipitous to have them contact you and uh, recommend you as a guest. So I was really, really thrilled to be able to have you here. Uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact has that ended up having on your life and your career?
1: Um, I was on the debate team in high school, and it had a tremendous impact on my career because it taught me critical thinking, taught me research, taught me communication skills, um, and it taught me how to win, Srini. I mean, I was a special education kid in grammar school. I was a scrawny kid in junior high trying to fit in, I never could win anything, I was never could make any of the teams, uh, and then finally I discovered the debate team in high school and joined the debate society, speech society, and it fundamentally changed my life.
2: Hmm. So, walk me through how you go from debate team to everything that you've ended up doing now, like, walk me through the trajectory of your career.
1: Uh, National debate champion, Loyola, um, early 1980s. I win a law school scholarship. It's called the Jaworski Scholarship, um, free ride to Baylor. Um, However, um, I was teaching a debate camp for high school students in Tucson the summer before that first year of law school. I heard a reggae band. I heard Bob Marley being covered for the first time. I fell in love with it. I never went to law school. I stayed in Tucson, went to graduate school instead, grew dreadlocks, formed a band. (laughs) And greatly um, pursued uh, the musical, you know, the musical opportunity. And for the first, I guess, 12 years of my career, I had a job, but I was always aiming towards the weekend, you know, for our gigs and such. Um, I stayed a musician, ironically, I stayed a musician all the way until 1998. I was working for Mark Cuban in Dallas at Broadcast.com. I was really serious about making Broadcast.com succeed. We all were. We, we we saw the fire and the passion that Mark had for audio and video over the internet. But I still had that dream about being in a band. And we just got back from South by Southwest. And I remember Cuban says to me, well, you've been doing this for, what, 13 years? Still hasn't happened yet. But this is about to happen for you at Broadcast.com because we were going to IPO. He goes, What do you care most about? What do you want to do really, really well? And I went home and I thought about it, and that was the last day our band existed. And I haven't played a public gig since then, Mm -hmm. although I would say I got a bunch of toys upstairs and I play music all the time. I learned a very valuable lesson you know, through all of that, that sometimes you kind of hit a fork in the road where you've got to be 100% focused on the opportunity at hand. And to do that, sometimes you're going to have to leave behind something you're heavily invested in.
2: Wow, okay. So a couple of questions come from that. Um one, what are the lessons from the dedication and commitment required uh for something like, you know, a career in music that you've applied to other aspects of your career in your life? And two, when people hit that fork in the road, why do you think people have so much trouble leaving something behind to focus on something else a hundred percent?
1: Um so I think the greatest thing I learned in the band is that life is a performance. And so all the things you thought about as a band, like making sure the lighting's right, having props that drive the theme of what you're doing there. We used to show video on screens that was synchronized to our stuff. We had all these things we did thinking about the the viewer experience, people that actually came to our shows, because you know it's hard to get them to come back a second time, especially if you play original music like we did. So all that showmanship was really important to me later in the business world from a four-person presentation to try to close a deal to the first times I spoke at a conference on behalf of Broadcast.com. Fast forward now, Srini, I've done 700 keynotes in my career across the world. Um, I may not carry a huge production team, but I've never lost that sense of showmanship because I think that only with a compelling experience that's memorable and engaging do we move people, Mm -hmm. whether it's to come back to the club and see us, or more importantly, to follow our advice. Let me answer the second part of your question. So I've known other people in my days in Dallas who had similar things come up, and they said, damn it, no, I'm not giving up on my music career. And they kind of did it, and to be honest with you, today they're still doing it, and they're just scratching by. The problem is they're all in their 50s like me, and that's kind of a tough deal, right? So let me tell you why I think we don't do the right thing when we hit the fork in the road. And and this is something I talk a lot about that's not always well-received, but it comes from my best intentions, okay? I think purpose is more important than passion. I think that we mistake passion uh, with flow. Um, There's things in our life we do, and when we're doing them, we don't even notice the time. It doesn't even feel like work. There's just so much intrinsic value that we get out of doing that thing, and we call that thing our passion. And many of us are willing— to put that in front of our purpose, whether it's to make a difference in the world, to take care of our family, whatever. And, and we fight for it, and we fight for it because there's these iconic figures out there that tell you, follow your passion. Uh, they're, big, they're big voices right now in social media. And many of them, I mean, just being very blunt here, they're very, they come from a sense of entitlement. I mean, if you kind of look at their history, um, they didn't have to fight and scrap for what they got like we did. And I really believe that we've got to balance our passion and our purpose, and we've gotta be willing to step back and ask ourselves not what can I do that I want to do, but what can I do that's really gonna make the biggest impact on the world? And I remember having this discussion with my wife. She played bass in our band at the time, and she was also heavily invested in our musical career. Over two bands, over ten years, we'd really, really, you know, invested everything at much sacrifice to our young son. And I, I'm laying in bed that night, and I said, "Honey, I said if you took all of our followers, you could fit them into two Greyhound buses." And we've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. I said, "But Broadcast.com is going to change the world." I mean, 10 years from now, people will get video and audio over the Internet faster, better, cheaper than they're getting it over cable. I need to do this. And that's when she and I agreed Then it's time to lay it down. And and since then, I've coached people on making the right decisions. And they always push back on the passion argument and help them understand you will develop a passion for your purpose. Mm -hmm. Flow is a great thing when you're a kid. It's a great thing when you're a savant artist or creative, but for the average Joe like me, Purpose is a winner every single time. Yeah, you
2: know, I I appreciate this perspective because often you know, like you said, a lot of people who preach the "follow your passion" mantra are coming from a, a place of entitlement. Because often, when I see a lot of the the sort of prominent people who've built you know huge personal brands on the internet, uh, I was just talking to my friend Kay Hay, at, uh, who, who runs a podcast called mm. Bad Reads, and I said, "You can't you know neglect the fact that you came from the world of finance and you are a managing director at you know a hedge fund." I'm like You're approaching this all from a place of privilege. Like you can't, you can't leave that out of the conversation. It's irresponsible. I've even said, you know, even I think even Seth Godin has acknowledged that you know there are probably people who read his blog on a daily basis to whom the conversation that he is having with them is not relevant because they're barely scraping by.
1: Right, right. No, it's true. It's true. And you know, I just, I just can't tell you um, how many people um, have, you know. Really struggled with this passion versus purpose issue, right? Um, and I just worry that too many people are going to figure it out very late in life, mm-hmm. and and so that's why you know I offer this advice, and you get pushback a lot on it, right? Because I mean it does make sense that if you look at the Jimi Hendrix or the Picasso's or the Steve Jobs of the world, they recklessly pursued this this feeling of flow and passion. Um, even the, I watched this Jimmy Iovine thing, the Defiant Ones, classic example. Um, but that's just like saying, well, then you should take your savings and start a company because look at Mark Cuban. He turned into a billionaire. I mean, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't work for everybody. There, you, And you know the difference. You know whether you're gifted. You know whether you're really, really special, really, really unique, especially in creative circles because the door's the door's open for you. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that you're successful overnight. I mean that there's a resonance in the market for what you do. Yeah. And I think that's what Mark was telling me that day. Mm-hmm. You know, three records down the road, um, I'd met with a lot of people. Even Jimmy Iveen himself had heard my demo, okay, and it hadn't happened yet. And his point was. It was happening for me in the other opportunity, maybe not as fun, maybe not as flow. But here we are just a year into the company and we were already you know, changing the world. And I really kind of got that. And, you know, it also just kind of just kind of comes down to I really wanted to do the right thing for my kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wanted to. And I'll, I'll say this, though. My, my wife, Jacqueline, um, never, ever suggested that I stop pursuing my dream, which I'd had even before I met her of being a signed musician and living on it. And she said the reason that she never wanted to discourage it, she even played in it and she supported it to the moment we stopped it, is she didn't want me to hit my 50s or 60s and look back and say, man, I was robbed of that opportunity for this stupid money business thing. And, you know, here I am. I'm too dang old to release a record, even though I'm making great music. And uh, I don't regret a thing because I got to try it for a long time. And I really appreciate that support from my partner on that.
2: Yeah. You know, I think the other thing I appreciate is that you brought up that you tried it for a long time, because I think in the world that we live in today, people have a very sort of warped perception of longevity. Like, you know, even when it comes to entrepreneurial endeavors, you know, I heard Sam Altman say this in the uh, how to start a startup podcast. He said, you know, he said a lot of people come into the, the startup world thinking, hey, I'm going to work on this thing for about three years, and I'm going to sell it and then, you know, mm-hmm. count, sit on an island counting my cash. He said, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is, is if you are serious about this, it takes a long term view. And in his mind, a long term view was defined as 10 years. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. It does. I mean, you, you can't go into a startup thinking it's going to be a short run with a quick acquisition. First of all, no sane investor, either angel or VC is going to get excited about hearing that. Okay. Because the problem is, if you aim for a short existence, it affects how you wire everything from the beginning, right? So you're not building a brick shit house; you're building a straw hut of a company, really. And when I am asked to sit on advisory boards for startups, I, I take a look at their plumbing, their stack, I take a look at their processes, I take a look at how they think about talent and how early they started culture. And when I see a straw hut, I don't care about user growth. Mm-hmm. I don't care about how uh, their stripe of tech crunch, Mashable, everybody's covered them. I realize there's no foundation here. And I know that when we try to pursue the B round or the C round or even get under the microscope of acquisition by Google, they always say Google's going to buy us. It's going to fall apart. And that's been a good intuition for me.
2: Mm. So. You got to work uh, up close and personal with a billionaire like Mark Cuban, and I I knew I would have a lot of questions about that just based on on having read your book. I'm curious. One... What is it you think that enables somebody to achieve at that level, like, you know, outside success? You know, we we had uh, Elon's wife, uh, ex-wife, Justine, here before to talk about the psychology of visionaries. Um, It was really interesting to hear her perspective on it because she had a seat, you know, a view into that that most of us will never get. And you, I think, have a view into the life of somebody like Mark Cuban that most of us will never get. Also, how have you seen him change over time uh, since you were in the early days of Broadcast.com? Because I know in those days he wasn't like, you know, who he is today.
1: Mm, Yeah, he was. He was exactly the same kind of dude. He's, you know, he's just a little prettier and a little smoother. And um, (laughs) he is getting a little more cynical at, at, you know, entrepreneurs and when they share their vision without a business case and he was a little more hopeful if that's the only thing. But but he's always been that buoyant personality. He's always brought this energy into a room. He's always been prone to action like like I've never seen before. He really subscribes to this Napoleon Hill belief that average people uh, take a long time to make a decision and act, but they're very quick to undo it. He says the great people of the world act instantly and are stubborn to ever turn back. And the secret for that for him was preparation. So if I pointed to something that probably accounted for a lot of Mark's success, it was his time at Indiana University in college with his college buddy, Todd Wagner, who co-founded Broadcast.com. It was called AudioNet when it started. And the basketball coach was Bobby Knight. And Bobby Knight had a really, really big Um, influence on Mark. And if you read his book, This Business of Sport, the Mark Cuban book, it's online at Amazon. You'll kind of get this vibe. Bobby Knight always said, everybody wants to win, but only a few people are willing to do the hard work to prepare to win. So Cuban was a bookworm like I'd never seen in my life. There wasn't a major newspaper he hadn't read cover to cover that day. That guy plowed through, I'm not exaggerating, Srini, 50 books between January and July of, of two, two, uh, 1997 when I met him. Uh, and it wasn't just stuff on IT and broadcast. It was like everything adjacent to it, how markets were structured, how brands were built, the experience economy, all of this stuff. He had this edge-level curiosity because he believed the average person was too lazy to read books in adult life, and he was right. Mm -hmm. He believed that a lot of people were kind of – he didn't ever use this phrase, but all hat and no cattle. They'd read a blog post about something or an article in a magazine and become an instant expert. He believed that complex ideas require a real commitment to understand. And that's what really kind of started me down the path of reading a lot, too, because – Book readers are better leaders of conversations, right? We can talk much deeper about complex ideas. We have a gift we can bring to every conversation. We give the best swag. <laughs> we give books yeah. that we've actually read on the other person's behalf, marked up like a student, and delivered with, you know, a, a lot of recommendations. So I, I think that Cuban's devotion to research uh-huh. and ongoing learning. And helping customers save them from themselves, his belief that during times of great change are times of great opportunities for teachers and insight people. Um, That was a huge paradigm shift for me. And, you know, for those that watch him on Shark Tank, I want you to pay more attention now to how, you know, he's always trying to bring a gift to everybody conversation right he's always trying to give a little piece of advice and you also find him a lot more grounded on on research than just hunch huh. um in the way that he thinks and that that's something i think that was very special about him the, the one thing i would say that i would tell you is that people always think what was it like working with mark and the answer is it was great unless you came to him with a half-baked idea uh-huh and then you get mad he would get furious. You wasted his time. I mean, if you thought Forrest Whitaker didn't like having his time wakened, Mark Cuban did not like having his attention <laughs> wasted. So when you came to him with, I have an idea, and he'd say, what are your key assumptions? And you'd go, no, I just had it five minutes ago. He would like – his ears would explode, okay? Yeah. Um Do your research. Know what you're talking about. A prototype is worth a thousand meetings and ask three people before you ask for resources. These are all like things that he really believed in. So I learned myself. um, It's great to bring him ideas um, and it's great to bring him groundbreaking ideas. But if you haven't done the tech work in in, in advance, um, it's 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 a bad day for you and Mark.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I remember the the one thing that struck me from the interview that he did on Chase Jarvis Live was he said, I don't attend meetings unless somebody's writing a check. I was like, there is a guy who values his time.
1: That's right. That's right, and he believes that, and he didn't like to do presentations unless somebody was writing a check, and that gave me a lot of opportunities to do presentations, and in fact, one to Tom Peters, the writer, um, that had a real impact on my career um, when Tom came to do a tour of Broadcast.com. So I valued uh, Mark's willingness to distribute the opportunities to other people, especially in those non-check writing opportunity experiences.
2: So I'm I'm curious, for you personally, having been through the acquisition of a startup like Broadcast.com, did your own money story change as a result of this whole experience? And and what advice do you have for other people about money stories?
1: Well, I mean, I went from having no money in the bank. We were like check to check. We ate on my wife's tips. She was a professional hairstylist. Um, When the IPO happened, you know, that probably juiced us up by, you know, 20 or 30 grand. It wasn't a big deal. Um, And when they sold the company to Yahoo, there was some value there. I mean, my real value, like economically, where I really gained a lot more wealth was when I got to Yahoo, it was right around the market crash. Mm Mm-hmm. And we lost a huge part of our business base because we were like doing business with other dot communists, right? I mean, if you think about it, 97, 98, 99, you would go to Yahoo. You would write them a $5 million check for a promotional campaign. You would put out a press release that you had a marketing partnership with Yahoo, and your startup's value would go up dramatically. And that was a model that all – that's part of the bubble, right? And so – um, after March of 2000, um, we had to go get real advertisers like Nike and Disney and Procter and Gotham, because that's what you call P and sales. We had to go get all of them to give us money. And um, they didn't believe us. I mean, no one had clicked on banners back in those days. There was no performance data. And we'd alienated all the ad agencies because we were going directly to CMOs because we just didn't understand how you had to play in the real ad business. So I really saw that as a huge opportunity, so I put together a SWAT team, and we closed a lot of business. I'll tell you that my team of four and I closed or shadowed like a quarter billion dollars of revenue per year, and we regrew that business, and so I was really rewarded with more options at the bottom, and so as Yahoo, you know, got back some of its value, that's where I saw my greatest uh, increase in wealth. Mm. Um, so I will say that broadcast.com has historically one of the lowest distributions of stock options um, to employees of, of anyone I've seen at, at this at this kind of IPO and 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 it's not a good thing or a bad thing it's kind of more paradigmatic that you know m- m- mark ran it it was a public company but it was run like a private company. Um, and, and his next company, HD.net, I don't believe gave any equity. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, his model has been to pay people cash for their work, which I can totally buy into. I think he always kind of believed that he was a Dallas guy, right? So he kind of believed that the Silicon Valley nature of we're all in this together. Cause we have stock. He worried that that wasn't customer focused enough. Uh,
2: wow. Um, well, let's do this. Let's uh, talk uh, about this whole idea of love as the killer app. I'm curious, you know, what what planted the seed for this entire concept? And then I want to go really into the framework of it.
1: So right about the time I went to work from Mark. I had been reading a lot to better myself. And, you know, when I, when I met him, I learned, oh, don't just, don't just read self-help books. Read books about market changes. Read books about customer problems. But anyway, I'd been rereading books like Napoleon Hill and Dr. Covey's Seven Habits. And then I, I read this book that I hadn't read since college, and it's called Love by Leo Biscaglia, the New York University professor. Mm -hmm. And he believed that love was the most powerful force in the universe. It's the thing that people always want from us everywhere, that home is the place where they've got to take you in. And the reason you want to become the greatest is because it's something you can give away. And I was like, this is so true. And our motto at at the time we were called AudioNet, our motto was Cuban's battle cry, make love, not war go out into the market, find out what the customer wants, and give it to them, and then we'll figure out how to be profitable. But we're not going to go to war with our clients over the PL. and And I felt like, Srini, that I was in the first business environment ever where I could really practice what was in my heart. And that was using business as a platform to multiply the value of everybody's life that I did business with. And you have to understand that you know, this time period, 98, 99, 2000, these were times of great change and uncertainty. And um, my industry that I served for sales was retail. Okay? You talk about people who are being disrupted. I mean, they were like freaked out in 97, 98, 99 about e-commerce. Um like publishers were freaked out by e-books or like record companies were freaked out a little bit later by Napster. This thing was disruptive. And when there is great disruption, there is great opportunity. And so I found out that if I went out and shared my knowledge and in some cases shared my network of compassion and just cared about people, showed compassion, showed human warmth, it was really going to make a difference for me and my performance and my results. And I'm telling you, the doors swung wide open. I built a really powerful brand. Here I was, I was just an account executive at a startup and I'm getting meetings with CEOs of Fortune 1000 companies and people are scratching their head. Why is this guy in the room? When people ask, how did you get promoted to chief solutions officer? I believe that they had no choice at that point because I was repping the company at such a high level to so many very important people from the chairman of Sony to standing president, what they got to give this guy. So, so I, I'm telling you, I kind of discovered the secret to success. I just happened to write it down Mm -hmm. and I wrote down this little training program called biz love. And I'll never forget, you know, I I kind of did it right before the acquisition by Yahoo. So I kind of wrote it and I delivered it a little bit to the sales team. And it was really about the core idea of let's go out and be mentors. And whenever possible, let's go out and be super connectors. And when I got to Yahoo, I buddied up with somebody that was in charge of sales training. And um, I said, I've got this little training course. It's only three hours long. It's called Biz Love. I'd like to give it to the young yahoos. And he thought it was a really cool idea because they were trying to shape culture at the time. And so I gave that presentation All over the country. In fact, I even traveled to different Yahoo properties around the world and gave that, which expanded into one day. Um, And so from that came the construct for a book idea. Uh, Dr. Stephen Covey Sr. told my literary agent that a great book is a presentation given a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Seven Habits had been given a thousand times before he actually wrote the book. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So anyway – I'm in Dallas, it's right before I'm gonna move to the Silicon Valley, probably three months before I'm gonna move. I'm doing a little presentation on behalf of Broadcast.com to some some people about the future of web streaming. And like I always do, um, I insert my personal point of view into the end of the presentation. So I do like you know 20 minutes on what I'm supposed to talk about and then 10 minutes on love. And I'm telling these business people, if you wanna be more successful, you're gonna do this, do this, do that. In the back of the room was a literary agent, I'd never met her before, somebody had told her about about me because I've been doing this kind of talk all over town. And she comes up to me, Serenity and she's got this big expensive bag and she's like, darling, I love this. You got a book in you. And I was like, excuse me. Uh, I'm not a writer. And she says, I discovered Stephen Covey Sr. I discovered Tony Robbins. I discovered Phil McGraw, I discovered Deepak. And I'm like, okay, I'm listening. And um, over the course of the next six months, uh, she found me a writing partner. We shaped a book proposal. Um, We went to New York, got a really good book deal from Random House Crown. And then over the following summer in a series of conversations with my partner, we wrote Love is the Killer App. The actual title came from a flippant answer uh, I gave a young person who came up to me after a conference. I was speaking at Ad Tech back in the day. I think it was like 2000 at the time. And they came up to me and said, you know, what's the next big breakthrough? What's the next killer app? And I looked at that person and I said, hey, people are the next big thing. Love is the killer app. And standing next to me was a guy that was in marketing. And he says, son, write that down right now. Write that down. And that's where the book title came from.
5: That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, I want to get into um, sort of the three core components that really struck me. Uh, the first one being knowledge. Um, I, Like I said you know, before we hit record here, uh, that was probably my favorite part of the book. As an avid reader, I had never seen somebody so thoroughly explain their book reading process, and I was wondering if you could give us uh, sort of a, a deep dive into that.
1: Oh, I am glad to. So I got to set this up for everybody, though. Um, When I think about what it means to love somebody in a professional sense, what I mean is that I intelligently share my key intangibles, the stuff that doesn't leave me when I give it away, my knowledge, my network, my compassion. And I do it with the spirit of promoting the other person's success and, most importantly, promoting their growth. And I believe, Srini, that the foundation for building relationships and helping people is to share your knowledge. Whether in a chance conversation, whether in a formal mentorship program, you share knowledge to help other people succeed, and you develop trust. And so I believe, much like Leo Biscalia says, the reason you want to be the greatest is it's something you can give away. And what I've learned is you cannot give away what you do not have so if 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 sharing knowledge is the foundation of moving forward then the most important task is to aggregate knowledge and not just common knowledge but the deep the hidden the difficult to understand absorb and code and articulate that's the stuff that's going to make you special in this world so i ventured into a campaign Uh, To become a voracious reader of difficult materials, long-form books, academic science, research, that kind of thing. I got very devoted to it. Uh And I set a goal to read a book every month cover to cover more if possible. And later we could talk about how I'm able to read so much because that's usually – the number one pushback people have. They say, I don't have time to read. And I'm like, I snort when I hear that because that's not true. But anyway, so when I started to read, I realized that there's no value in reading a book if all you get to say about it later was I read Made to Stick. That's no value to that. Um, If you're going to talk about a book you've read to a colleague, the point of it all is to transfer a concept, a construct, and illustrate it in such a way that drives either understanding or at least epistemic curiosity, epistemic curiosity is different than diversive curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the need to know the desire to understand. You can't do that, Srini, if you don't read a book carefully and don't read it with a a real methodology. So here's what I developed. I called it the cliff and tag system. This is back in the day when I was only reading hardcover books as much as possible, and the reason I like hardcover books is um, they had more blank inside pages in the front and the back for note-taking, and the hardcover made it easier to write on. I know that sounds silly, but I loved hardcovers. As I said in Love is a Killer app, hardbacks are the bomb. And when I read a book – when I was reading a book, I know everybody's like, well, I – I, I mark things in my book, but I had a system here. So if I read something in the book, and it was something I didn't want to forget, or if I reviewed later, I'd want to run across it and reread the passage, I would go to the front of the book, write down the page number, a colon, and fit that entire concept into one line. And frequently, I would have to use abbreviations and use small print to make it fit. I found out later that that abbreviation thing I came up with, which was several hundred words, not quite the Hobbit lexicon but several hundred abbreviations br equals brand def equals definition sig equals significant that was actually a memory technique i didn't even realize i was doing to really drive in concepts as i was reading them if i read something that applied to a current project i was working on or could be shared with a customer i would flip to the back of the book and then those open pages i would do the same thing page number colon fit the idea and then underneath that line in brackets where it's supposed to go it's project or a person. And that's my system. And typically, um, half the books I read are books that are read empathetically. I call it prescriptive reading. What I mean is, if you're my customer, if you're my colleague, if you work for me, and I see a knowledge issue for you, or there's a change going on in your market, or there's a change going on in your tech space, I like to read books as if I was you to get a real understanding of what's going on in your world and a real Value that I could deliver to you, right? So I got out of the self-help and got into prescriptive reading. And the cool thing about the cliff and tag is, you know, you could talk to somebody over a long lunch, there's stories I tell about this, you know, talk to them about a great book I read that really addresses an issue you're worried about. They get enthusiastic about it. And I produce, guess what? Here is the book I was telling you about. But even more importantly, because I'd done the cliff and tag, I could go in there and use post-it notes and flag everything I wanted Gary to pay attention to when he read the book. And I'm telling you, When you give that book with that kind of flag documentation and show that much care about what's going on in their world, it creates an unbelievable bond between two people. And here's the other cool thing about this system. You learn a lot. By by expanding your reading and taking it very seriously and documenting, you, you learn a great deal about adjacent spaces. Uh, you expand your resume. And the best part is if you wanted to go back and reread a book quickly because you're going to talk about it in your next meeting, the cliff and tag system, those front page notes, accelerate that process greatly for you.
2: You know, it's funny, um, as I'm hearing you say that, my friend Ryan Holiday has something that he calls the note card system that he learned from uh, Robert Greene. And so I'm sure you're familiar with this system as well. And I never forgot something that he told me. He said, you know, the idea for The Obstacle is the Way was on a note card that he wrote down years before the book even was published. And he said, I wrote down that one note card and... You know, he said 200,000 copies of that book have been sold. Now, he said, look, I got thousands of note cards, many of them which lead to absolutely nothing. But he said one of those is enough to build a
1: career off of. He's absolutely correct. I love Ryan, by the way, and I love what he's contributed to what I like to call the casual stoic movement. Um, I just love him. And he's got a great new book on sales and marketing, and it's mm-hmm. written from his point of view, and it's just great. So yeah, he's great. And the note card system, I've used that. When I wrote Today We Are Rich, I, I, I leveraged the note card system. I didn't really hear about it um, from Green. I, I actually got it in a creative writing course, but because it was – they were really trying to teach us not to, to be laptop writers. Uh-huh. Right. Because it's really hard to be conceptual when you're a laptop writer. Right. So
2: you just mentioned that you wrote a book called Today We Are Rich and I couldn't let that go. I'm curious what you mean by that and and what message you'd want people to uh, understand from hearing that.
1: Okay, so um, I mentioned before my grandmother took me in. She raised me. I was raised on a farm. And um, right after she took me in, her husband of over 20 years left her and he took everything, including her two teenage boys. And he cleaned out her bank account. So here she and I were in her farmhouse. And we had nothing. As a matter of fact, there was one day I remember where the guys from the department store repossessed um, her stove. Okay. Um, It was a tough time for us. And I remember uh, shortly thereafter uh, one morning. um, And she, by the way, got another stove by doing hair for people at the church. She had a lot of pluck. We were like eating breakfast. And I'm looking out through the window. And we lived on a farm. And I could see this huge guy, this mountain of a man walking across our wheat field directly towards the house. And she saw me with my big eyes watching that guy. And so she gathered me up because what's she going to do, she's like an elderly person with a little kid. She's going to meet the guy at the electric fence. So we walk through the orchard. We get to the electric fence right about the time this guy's just coming up on us and he's a mountain of a guy in a black, ashy jacket. And so she introduces himself. She says, I'm Billy and this here's Tim. What do you need? And he looks at us and he says, I need a job just for today and I need food. And then he explained to Billy that everybody had swindled him back in Oklahoma of everything he owned. And he was walking. He, no, I lived in New Mexico. He was walking to Arizona for the only family member he trusted, and he was going to start his life over again. But he had not eaten. He couldn't get a job. Uh, African American walking through West Texas and New Mexico had had dog sicked on him, guns shown at him, and he just needed somebody to believe in him for a day. And Billy kind of looked to the sky, and she kind of looked to him, and she thought, "Well, this is a good time to start trusting men again." So she said, "I got some jobs for you." His name was Clarence. So she says, "I'll give you five dollars." I know, actually, she said, I'm going to give you $10, but you're going to do a whole day's work and I'm going to feed you lunch. So she had him do everything from pruning the top of the peach trees to painting the edge of the barn, which was reached very run down and she, she couldn't reach it, hauling off huge junk in the front yard of the barnyard. And I got to tell you, Srini, Clarence worked like a new hire right at Tesla. I mean, he hustled. He hung his jacket on a tree and he worked really hard, and I, I acted as his foreman so I'd follow behind him and like say you missed a spot there. And I'll never forget that when she brought out lunch that day and it was like for him a feast. It was it was beans and franks with Texas toast and sweet tea and fresh potato salad and the more he ate, the more friendly he got and he's talking to me and he kind of points at Billy and he says, "You see that woman? She's an angel put on this earth today to tell a guy like me that everything's going to be okay." And he goes People don't think that way like her, and the thing you could learn from her is to be that angel, and, and and I'll never forget he said that. So she comes out at the end of the day, and he'd done everything she said and then some, and so she walks up to Clarence, and we're like out in the, the, the barnyard, and she takes out her purse, and she opens up the little – Side pocket that grannies always have in their purse, and it's got the little emergency $20 bill that's all folded up into a little – looks like a little football you used to play paper football with. She unfolds it, and she said, I said I'd give you $10 for a good day, but for a great day, here's 20 bucks." And my eyes got wide because I didn't even know we had $20, okay? And I could tell it touched him too. And so, but she was like one of these very religious people. So she immediately said, "Uh, I want to pray with you. So anyway, um, the two of them kneeled down like by the horse tie and they're praying. And so she thanks God for bringing Clarence into our life and wishes him well. And she stands up and he's like really, he's really moved by this situation. So he's like still staying down when she and I are both standing up. She notices that his shoes, they're like wingtips or like, like, you know, old dress shoes. They didn't even have soles in them. Like you could see his black socks sticking out from the bottom of his shoes so she says to clarence before you leave stop by the front of the house i've got something for you and so um when he and i were walking towards that the house and everything we saw her come back out on the porch a few minutes later and she's standing there with a huge smile on her face and she's holding this brand new go to sunday pair of shoes. That her deceased father had bought right before he died. And, you know, casual note here no depression survivor ever buries her dad in a brand new pair of shoes. So she had kept them in her closet for an opportunity, and this was it. So she says, I hope they fit. Clarence sat down on the swing on the front porch. He popped them on, and they fit like a cobbler had made them for him. He tosses my hair. He shakes her hand. He has his little Yellow pillowcase with whatever he owned over his shoulder and he strutted down West 7th Highway 64 with like the confidence of a man that, you know, walking to the West. And I'll never forget, you know, Billy and I are staring at him, walking away and walking away. And she puts her arm around me and she like pulls me close and she says to me, she says, never forget what happened today. She goes, because today she goes, we are rich and she says there's two kinds of rich in the world. There's money rich and there's, there's spiritual rich. And, and no one will ever take today away from me. And you have to imagine, Sweeney, that had a real impact on how I saw the world. And you know, for the rest of the time, I guess, much like Billy, I've approached my most difficult and challenging times trying to find opportunities to help other people that need help more than I do. Because what I realized through my life, and I know that in various cultures they teach this, scarcity is an illusion. And for Billy, giving was how she became rich. And maybe for me, sharing what I have with people in business is how I become rich. Uh, and then that book was about her.
2: Hmm. Funny enough, I think that makes a really perfect segue to ask you about the next component of, of Love as a Killer App, which is the idea of the network and how you build relationships, because I, I really loved how you explained that. And I'm curious if you could give us an overview of that.
1: Absolutely So your network Is your net worth I mean It's the one asset You own free and clear It cannot be repossessed It's up to you To ruin it It can solve Any problem in your life Or any problem In the life Of anyone you ever meet Especially today In our hyperconnected world Right It's so addressable So I believe that When we share knowledge, we develop a sense of trust and loyalty with another person. And based on that trust and loyalty, we're in a really good space and a really good place to share our network of relationships. And so what I kind of figured out early on is that there's the networkers of the world and there's the super connectors of the world. The networkers of the world are really prospectors in sheep's clothing, right? They go to these networking events. They carry around a stack of business cards. They ask people, what do you do? They kind of size them up. Sometimes they offer to swap. I'll do this for you, but really what they want is to get. And they collect. And that's great. I guess it's a prospecting technique. But the super connectors, those are the ones I really admire. The super connector put other people together that should meet. The super connector, it's like their hobby, I mean, she just like delights over the idea that she put two people together and they launched a startup. The super connector expects nothing in return other than maybe you're going to pay that forward in the future. The super connector is extremely humble. They understand that just because I connected two people doesn't mean I did anything, right? Like like the example I used you, you connected two people that you thought could collaborate and they end up starting a million-dollar company – the connection wasn't what made it happen, Hmm. right? They had to do pitch decks, they had to build a wireframe, they had to raise money, they had to execute, they had to survive the chasm. You know what I mean? There's a thousand steps in the arduous journey for the entrepreneur. The super connector knows that. That's why they don't expect anything in return. And what's really important here, Srini, is that if you approach networking from a give-without-expectations standpoint, talk about building a great brand with other people, that you're a valuable node in their network. When I started to treat it like that, and I created a, a metric, every week I'll introduce three people that should meet, and I started to live by it, and it became part of my daily research. Uh, every conversation I, I really – Listened as hard as I could for opportunities to introduce people to other people. Um, it had a huge impact on the size and the stature of my network, and it became my stronghold. And you know that th- this approach, um, I've seen other people execute, and I can always tell the super connector right away because they just seem so selfless about introductions. But you know what else? They're really organized. They've got their network at their fingertips. They know the technique of putting two people together and actually starting an engaged conversation. I, I do know some networker, super connector uh, wannabes. Um, and I mean wannabe not in a bad way, but I mean they intend to do that. They're just sloppy. So they meet somebody and they say, oh, gosh, Srini needs to meet David. And so they send this weird cryptic email like, Srini, David, you two need to meet. Be rock stars. Change the world. Tim. I mean, a spam email gets more of a click through than that, right? So one of the things I quickly learned is that you have to have very good technique, not just in terms of how you share knowledge, you need to have really good technique in terms of how you connect people. So I tried as much as possible to connect people face to face. It doesn't quite scale. Yeah. I tried to connect people best as possible with conference calls. It takes too long because networking introductions have a real expiration date. It's very, very short. So I've had to you know use email as a way of doing introductions. And I've worked very hard on that technique. Uh-huh. So um, later in the resource page, I'll tell you how you can read this. But I developed a really good way to introduce two people over email in a way that gets results. So let me just give it to you in a nutshell, OK? Mm-hmm. In every connection that you make, I want you to think that there's a benefactor and there's a beneficiary. There's the person that has the resource and then there's a person that needs the resource. That's usually how it works. Okay. so when I write the email, um, I in the subject line, I might say something, you know, saying read this colon and then a regular letter case. I say Srini needs to meet David. And then in the beginning, I say benefactor. I want you to meet beneficiary, and it's got your name, and then it's it's hyperlinked to your LinkedIn profile. And then I say, comma, and I give a little one sentence elevator pitch about why you're a rock star. And I don't say you're a rock star; I say, you know, you need to meet Srini. He's got an incredibly successful podcast, but moreover, he's got a stunning point of view about where creativity really comes from. I thought of you because of your fill in the blank resource that could really accelerate this. And then I say. Srini, beneficiary, I want you to meet benefactors, same thing, link to his LinkedIn profile, comma, as I was telling you, he does, possesses, has access to, fill in the blank about the resource, comma, and more importantly, is a very good personality match for you to talk to. And then at the bottom, I say... Within the next 24 hours, start an email thread, move me to BCC, and do something about it. And that's the way the note reads, okay? And I take time to write these. And the little secret then to success is, especially with a benefactor that's inundated with a lot of requests for their attention, I don't send that email until I've either had a text acknowledgement or a phone call with that benefactor that, hey, dude, I'm getting ready to introduce you to this guy. And I don't do this much. Mm -hmm. And you know my word is gold. And all I ask for you to do is to respond to the email and give him a five-minute conversation. And I do that. And when the benefactor says, I got it, then I hit the send button. Yeah. And if I don't hear that they're engaged later, because believe it or not, Srini, sometimes the beneficiaries don't execute on the opportunity. I don't get it, but sometimes they don't. I'm going to call that guy the next day, and I'm going to say, you need to respond to this. I never bug this guy with introductions like this. You need to respond on it. Carp diem. And I found that just those little steps can make you such a better connector of other people just by sharpening your technique and understanding that everybody's inundated. Everybody wants everybody's attention. Never assume that just a simple email is going to really produce any value.
2: Wow. Okay. That was amazing. And it's funny because I think back to all the potential podcast guests that I've been introduced to by other guests and almost exactly that format was used to the ones that I've said yes to.
1: Yep. Yep. Because you got to have – you know, we don't expect you to go out and do research to determine where this person is a good fit. I think we need to understand that there's a wall of noise. We need to be the signal, and that just comes with careful preparation. Yeah. And i got to say um, I'm the same way on business emails too. I mean I really take more time than the average Joe uh, to write what I call opportunity emails. Uh-huh. I mean on a tactical basis we may go back and forth, but, but I do think that it's important for us to write better emails today. Yeah.
2: You know, the other thing that uh, you brought up was the idea of of meeting face-to-face, even though it doesn't scale. And I'm a really, really big believer in the value of that. You know, we've had my friend John Levy here, who runs the Influencer Dinners in Manhattan, or now kind of all over the country. Um, You know, we even have started hosting our own unmistakable dinners, where we invite, you know, former guests of the show and friends once a month, me and my friend co-host it. Um, I I think in an increasingly digital world, like, we don't place nearly enough value on on face-to-face as we used to, as much as we should, because... um, I remember very distinctly, uh, you know, I, I went to a Summit Series event, and uh, Dean Ornish was one of the speakers there, and he said, you know, one of the things that we're losing um, as we've become more connected is this sense of community, and that yeah. actually comes from being together in person.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's science behind this, right? Go back 20, 25 years, uh, Dr. Morabian, you know, at U- University of California, studied this idea. <sighs> That we decode other people's intentions and meanings and who they are as a person visually, not verbally. Mm-hmm. And that to some extent, you know, when we are confused, audio is much better than just reading words. So, so what I kind of took away from that is that there's this ladder of abstraction that we climb. And the bottom of the ladder is text-based conversation. And as we get on, like you and I are on a podcast now, yeah. right? And so I'm listening to you, and I hear the tone of your voice, and I see your picture here on Skype. You probably see mine too, or whatevs. But but that's that's climbing the ladder of abstraction. If you and I uh, were to say, let's have a video chat next week, we're going to climb that ladder a little bit more. And then if you and I say, well, well, let's get together in New York, we're going to get to the very top of that ladder, where we have the most telepresence about understanding those little subtle cues in the other person. But, but not to get like Sheldon Cooper wonky here, but <laughs> one of the reasons that we like and love people we meet is kin. Familiarity. They remind us of somebody in our past that we love. And it's a simple heuristic that opens up the door for us to be curious about the rest of this person and what makes them unique. And you don't get that in a text thread. Mm hmm. You don't even get that on a phone call. I mean, when people ask me, how do you how do you fall in love so much with your business partners? I say I look across the table. You can see the passion in their eyes. They remind me of somebody else I knew when I was younger that I cared about. You can see by their body language how engaged they are in the conversation. And all of those things evaporate when we move to a words only conversation. So One of the things I've been talking about in my lectures recently and counseling my clients to do is to stop having conference calls. Mm -hmm. You need to flip the switch and go video if you want to communicate at a higher level with people and value their time. And more importantly, like them and care about them more. Um, Because if you think about it in your, your experience, I bet, there's people you might have had several phone calls with and you have a feeling about them. And then you have that lunch and we always think about there was like something that we said to each other no 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 it was all subconscious and it was almost all visually based where the real Mm, Spark was created And I think we're losing that Um, But I think the good news here is There's a lot of research about the newest generations Whether they're millennials or the Z's um, They dig video chat So we need to take advantage of that By the way, they don't dig real-time phone calls Mm -hmm. I got a a 32-year-old son I got to get his permission via text before I call him Or I am going in the voicemail (laughs) Because it's just not the habit of that generation To have real-time phone calls It's like closing your eyes and driving 100 miles an hour to them um, but they love video. So let, let's say, even though it's not the same thing as face-to-face today um, with platforms like FaceTime and Skype and Zoom and RingCentral, it's pretty darn close.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, well, let's
2: do this. Uh, I want to spend the last uh, part of our conversation talking about the final piece of, of Love is the Killer app, which is this notion of compassion. And um, can you have you give us an overview of that as well?
1: So I think that we build a lot of, trust and loyalty when we share knowledge. We build a lot of interdependence and deeper trust when we share our network of relationships, but we create a lifelong human connection when we show our compassion. And I take a page out of The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama by saying that my point of view is that compassion is your desire that others do not suffer unnecessarily. It is your willingness to do the work, to understand what struggle they are going through, and to let that set the context for your reactions in life. So let me kind of bring this back into like regular speak. I approach relationships like Apple approached customer experience design. I deeply care about the experience of the other. I understand that negative emotions dash happiness. Negative emotions have a health impact. Negative emotions keep people from actualizing. So whenever possible, I care about doing what I can to alleviate those or more importantly, avoid those through conscious design. So compassion is when you go to work caring about another person as a person willing to be vulnerable. To support them, whether to show empathy, whether to show encouragement, whether to let them literally cry on your shoulder, or whether to be there for them during times when everybody else wants to desert them because they are so full of anger. Because you really want to be part of the end of suffering. You really want to be part of them finding happiness because – Again, I'm wonky about this. Happiness is just the absence of negative thought. We as human beings are happy. That's how we're born. That's who we are. So so compassion is, is saying as a business person, I care about the other as a human. I care about the human condition as much as I care about my own accumulation. And for me, that was the one that took the most time to understand in terms of the required technique to do that with all of the taboos that we have all of the, the beliefs that that kind of behavior makes you look weak as a leader. And I've got to tell you after 17 years, the people that have practiced compassion in their business life have have rose to great power. They are often provisioned. They are never taken advantage of. And I think the thing that's most important is when they look back on their career, they enjoy it a second time. And I always say that, you know, it's the compassionate people at work that will have a real sense of significance at the end of their career. It's the discompassionate or non-compassionate, high productivity people at work that'll have a lot of doubts and be very lonely towards the end of their life.
2: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a a really fitting end to our conversation. Uh, So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable Mm. creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um, I think think a person becomes unmistakable because they blossom as a human into their full potential and um, to steal a line from Antonio Banderas the charisma shoots out of the center of the earth up through their ass out of the top of their head like a geyser and nothing can withstand the shower of themness that's what makes somebody unmistakable And so if you want to be that person, what I'm telling you is you have to figure out what you were put here to do. You have to do the hard prep work to be the best in the world at it. You need to let that generate intense enthusiasm. You need to read your fan mail and stop giving your haters PhDs. And you need to bring all of that energy to every interaction. And if you do that, I'm telling you, dude, ain't nobody going to forget you quickly.
2: Uh. Awesome. Um, well this has been truly amazing. Where can people uh, learn more about you and your work and your books?
1: So um, we've set up a resource page um called TimSanders.com front slash creative. At Timsanders.com front slash creative, what we'll have for everybody is we'll have um, a, a big excerpt from love is the killer app it's the one that ran in fast company it's like five thousand words so you'll really be able to get your teeth into that book if you like it you can get a copy you can connect with me on facebook or twitter or linkedin and you know what we'll also do is um, we'll include a link to an article i wrote on the cliff and tag system of reading like a professional and that'll all be at timsanders.com front slash creative
2: awesome and for everybody listening maybe we'll wrap the show with that Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...